I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Tuesday, February 6th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And you know what? If, if this republic crumbles, if the government implodes, the deep state collapses into itself, or the pillars of democracy go kablooey, as the ancients foretold, I have, I have one hope, but one wish. And that wish is for us to correctly pronounce the names Rosenstein, Muller, and Nunez. Those are how those names are pronounced. Rosenstein, Muller, Nunez. Not Rosenstein, Mueller, or Nunez. I mean, it may be true we are living in the political end times. But, you know, during the, the real end times, as they were mentioned in the Bible, Book of Revelation 6-8, They knew the names, quote, so I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. His name was death, not death or death. We spend so much time debating, being concerned, spending our attention on the investigation and sideshow occasioned by Mr. Muller. Nunez and Rosenstein, and yet we don't know how to pronounce Mueller, Nunez, and Rosenstein. And it's right, it's proper that we're spending this attention. Dalliances of a foreign power on our elections, that's a serious thing. Can we get the names right? Can we at least get the names right? If the government's going to collapse, I want the names to be right. These are the central figures, the people who will deliver possibly the swift sword of justice, or in the case of Nunez, a discredited nincompoop desperately trying to affect the investigation. So I listened to Slow Burn. What a series. There you have Dean, you have Halderman, you have Ehrlichman. Everyone knows how all the names were pronounced. I mean, Cox and Nixon, you can't get those wrong. But we called the guy Ehrlichman the whole time. We weren't saying Ehrlichman or Ehrlichman. Maybe because we got our news via broadcast media. I don't know. I guess Ehrlichman and Halderman, those are classic Germanic surnames, but so's Muller, and it is Muller. It's not Mueller. Mueller, Mueller, anyone? Mueller. What kind of lawman is a Mueller? He's an officer of the court. He was weighing evidence. He's deciding whether to bring charges. He's a Muller. He's one who mulls. Your jailer is a Mueller. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I don't know if these guys will bring down Trump or not. I don't know if the Democratic memo will be an effective rebuttal or a My Cousin Vinny in the Shower Part 2. I'm pretty sure Hannity is wrong. That discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes' memo makes Watergate look like stealing a Snickers bar. But at least he is Devin Nunes, Portuguese name. All I ask is that can we, the chattering classes, can we at least chatter correctly? I know we've given up on the class part, but maybe... The chatter can be, if not accurate, at least consistent when it comes to the cast of characters. On the show today, I spiel about a defense of Trump so infuriating, it's treasonous. (laughs) Kidding. I like to kid about treason. You know who else does? But first, spanning the globe. From trouble spot to relaxing vacation paradise. Except there will be no vacation paradises. This is serious stuff. And if you're like me, you're interested in an expert breaking down Narendra Modi. And Mohammed bin Salman bin Abulaziz al Saud. Well, I hope you're interested. I know I am. I know Ian Bremer is. He's here to lay some international insight on us. 
Ian Bremmer is the president of the Eurasia Group, and because that phrase, Eurasia, has uh, three syllables and two-thirds of them are Asia, let's focus on Asia. In fact, what I want to do with Ian Bremmer, who is a political scientist and one of the uh, great global thinkers of our time, is hopscotch a little bit around the world, but of course, since we're American, talk about American influence waning and waxing and you know what other countries or forces are going to come into the maw. And I should also say, Ian is the author of the forthcoming Us Versus Them, The Failure of Global. Thanks for coming back. Good, good to be back with you. So it always shows up somewhere in the you know eighth paragraph of a story about international relations, and it hovers out there. Of course, China is waiting to pick up the pieces. The United States withdraws funding from Pakistan. Of course, China is there to be an ally. So many countries, whole continents, Africa, China is there. Well, what does that mean? Obviously, China is, they see themselves as a regional power. Maybe they'd like to be a bigger power. They're always going to press their advantage. But what does it mean that China is there with, let's take Pakistan. What does that mean? Maybe, let's start a little broader than that. Sure. China's only a regional power militarily. China is already an economic superpower. Oh, yeah. And they're already a technological superpower. Global, setting standards. Their economy is only two-thirds the size of the U.S., but it has a greater impact than the American economy internationally in most countries around the world because the Chinese government is doing the driving. They're writing the checks. The Americans aren't. And in technology, the Chinese are literally like at parity with us around many of the key aspects of developing AI, and they're about to surpass us in some of them. So what does it mean that China is stepping into the breach Really, the military lens is not the most important lens. It's the economic lens that affects our day-to-day lives. And there, I think, it is really going to affect us because, you know, our our biggest companies right now are, you know, the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles, and they're not global. They don't have access to the world's largest data market, the world's largest internet market, the world's largest digital consumer market. This is the future of the global economy, and it's increasingly splitting. You know, when I think about trade, I'm not actually that worried about a trade war, which what most people think of when they say, oh, it's going to really hurt us, because at least in trade, the Americans and Chinese are actually quite interdependent. Right. So if we hit them, they hit us, we cost each other. We import, you know, they export, uh, they buy our treasuries yeah. if they sell. It's a, a partnership. It's a partnership. Yes. In technology, that's not true. In technology, it's actually increasingly a zero-sum cold war. They are supporting their companies. They are occupying in their own standards, their own space, and we're not there. And that is going to not just be China, but it's going to expand to a lot of other economies where they're dominant. And that, that does worry me. And that if it occurs, if it continues the way it's presently going, that'll fragment the global marketplace. That will affect American growth. Um, so, so it means like a company like uh, Apple and iPhones, this dominant technology, if it stops becoming dominant, great. Maybe Apple doesn't employ many people in the United States, but it's certainly a great American success story. It starts being an American failure story. It means that the great stories of the 21st century economically in the United States will of necessity only be operating in a diminished part of the global economy. Right. And for the last 50 years, our view has been our companies are going to dominate the global space. And it's not that they're fighting against Chinese competitors in countries all over the world. It's that in the most important market, they won't be there. So I think that's a huge difference. It does bother me. It does frighten me. And not in the boogeyman way that some critics of China point out. China 
is respectful to some extent in terms of uh, our partnership. We use the word partnership. But when they have leverage, there was just a story where they objected to the Marriott listing Taiwan as a nation on their site. And they punished the Marriott because they're a huge country and Marriott's just one company. Mm -hmm. And they punished them like a tyrant would, like someone with leverage. And they did it without compunction. And I think if they ever get the leverage or the upper hand on the United States, look out. It's not coming to be. fired that employee. Yeah, there was was a low-level person who didn't even mean to do anything but, you know, hit a tweet and she was gone. Yep. Yeah. They understand how to press commercial advantage. And historically, the Americans, the Europeans have done that as well. That's not the role we're playing in the world right now. We're not the ones that are developing. See, America First, in my view, has the potential to be a really workable strategy, a winning strategy, Mm -hmm. if it was long-term. In other words, if it was an actual strategy as opposed to just tactical response. And number two, if it involved the Americans leading by example. And the unfortunate thing is not only is it neither of those two things, it's kind of the antithesis of those two things. Yeah, I I mean, America First has... Uh, connotations that are pretty bad, but the Marshall Plan could be could have been seen as America first. I would have seen it that way. Sure, absolutely, Amer- and not America Uber Alice, right? right? Just like here, we're going to create a very workable international system. Since we're creating it, we're going to put ourselves in the prime place. But you're going to benefit too. And not only that, but it's an international system that will reflect our needs, our values, our, values. our preferences. Our right. yes. Th- that's gone. Yeah. The idea that we would so go back to your first question on Pakistan which we've taken a little diversion, but you know the idea that the Americans would be thinking long-term about the implications of either developing a relationship that's sustainable with Pakistan or just giving it up, mm-hmm. those, those decisions are not happening. Instead, we're mad that they're not doing as much for us as they should be. We're saying, we're going to cut you off. And meanwhile, 10 times American FDI into Pakistan is coming from China. So we just don't have that level of leverage. But the past 30 years, let's talk about Pakistan being an uneasy ally with the United States. If the United States had given it up 30 years ago, would Pakistan be a even more oppressed country now? You know, this is not the first time we've walked away from Pakistan after uh, the uh, Cold War was over. And remember, the Pakistanis were on our side supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Yes. And so they feel... They have a narrative where they feel like they helped us defeat the Soviets. And then once that was done, we were kind of uninterested in Pakistan until after 9-11. Suddenly then they were relevant again. But when we cut them off the first time, when we, we made them less relevant, there weren't many other games in town. They could get some money from the Saudis, but generally speaking, it was our way or the highway. Right. They weren't going to align themselves with the Soviet Union because right. India is the socialist uh, partner in that in that. Du- well, and the du- Soviet du- Union yeah. was gone after yeah. the Cold War was over, right. where now there there is actually an option. So, I mean, I agree with you completely that... That 20, 30 years ago, if the United States decided that we were going to play hardball, we could have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could have played hardball with the Russians. Or we could have brought them in, made the NATO-Russia Council a real thing, expand, integrate, you know, make Eastern Europe and Russia part of Europe and the Western enterprise. We did neither. And by doing neither, we're now in an environment where others have opportunities. Do we do neither because the voices inside the foreign policy establishment are fighting each other? And so the average of these two different sides is nothing? Do we do neither because that's a strategy? It seems like we, we do neither a lot. We, we did neither because there wasn't really much of an urgency for doing something. Right. 
ultimately each of the individual decisions looks fine in context, but there's no overarching strategy. There's we no didn't grand have a design. Yeah. There's no strategy. Yeah. And you know, the and you can't run the world's only superpower without strategy for twenty five years and expect that, you know, you're you're not gonna ding yourself pretty badly. Yeah. And that's why China's a problem, because the Chinese are a large country and they actually have a global strategy. It may not be aligned with the United States, but it is a strategy. And when countries around the world, Pakistan or the Sub-Saharans or anyone else, are thinking about what they want to do going forward, they're not thinking about how great the United States was 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're thinking about who's going to matter in the future. And if you're talking about governments, you're really hard-pressed to say, this American system, yeah, they're definitely going to be relevant for me in 10 years. So does a 15-year-old Kenyan or some other place where they've built a giant railroad think of the United States as a superpower? Do they think of China as an equal superpower? I mean, Kenya's an interesting model right now. Um, first of all, because in a lot of sub-Saharan countries, you do have this real can-do entrepreneurial spirit. They like American businesses, products, brands, CEOs. They love Bill Gates. Yeah. I think that in Kenya, you have a whole bunch of people that, frankly, still do really look up to the concept of America. But they also understand that the Chinese are building stuff, and it's ports, and it's infrastructure, and it's roads, and railways, and, and they need it. They really need it. And when the Chinese build things, it you know, usually comes with the strategy. The Americans are individual companies that are making investments, and we can cut those deals. It's fine, but it's not like the U.S. is saying, okay, here's what we're going to do with your country over the next 10 years, over the next 20 years. We just don't do that. We can't do that. Should we have? I mean, should we have been more present? Because I believe that American values, as tarnished and hypocritical as they can be, because I believe that they do mean something, that they actually lead to a better planet, than those of the Chinese or the Soviets. Maybe not a better planet than the Canadians, but you know what? The Canadians aren't in the game. Yeah. So given that... That's right. The Norwegians, maybe, in a hypothetical world, yeah. what a nice planet sure. would, it would be you know, if they organized I mean, if, it. if Bhutan was up for it, we sure. could have a conversation. They're not. But of the countries that are relevant globally, that can project power, the American values are still the best ones we've managed to have in the 20th and 21st century. And so the fact that the United States, with perfectly legitimate reasons has gone around the world and say, we just don't want to do this stuff anymore, Yeah, I think is profoundly destabilizing. I want to ask you about a couple other countries, two that fascinate me. India. I don't know. My theory is that while it is problematic that Modi is so nationalistic, which is to say Hindu nationalistic, I think that maybe he uses that, as ugly as it is, to get necessary economic programs through. But what we're seeing now is that his tax reforms, some of his economic programs, aren't firing on all the cylinders he hoped they would. What's your assessment of the game that Modi is playing? And if people don't know, he basically banned currency. He, you know, there are no notes anymore, or he's trying to change that system in India. So it's a huge overhaul. It's probably a necessary overhaul, but it was, it seemed like a big risk and gambit. How's he doing? And should we be worried about the nationalism stuff? I think he's doing pretty well, but we forget how far behind the Indians are. You know, India has about 1.4 billion people right now. So does China. Mm -hmm. In 2018, India will be spending about 10% on infrastructure that the Chinese will be spending domestic infrastructure. They, they are behind a good 20 years, maybe more than that. And Modi is completely not corrupt. 
And that's true of the people around him. And that's really important. And they're focused on improving the lives of the average Indians. That's really their priority. That's why they're doing the national goods and services tax. That's why they're, they're creating the uh, universal bank accounts, the universal ID with biometrics. They're trying to find ways to get through all the kleptocratic layers of the party bureaucracy to just get basic benefits to the Indians. And in 2018, they're actually going to be able to spend less on benefits and give the people more than they would have had in 2017. Okay. That's a wonderful thing. And so people are going to see that because right yes. now his popularity is declining. Yes, yeah. but they're going to see that. Uh, but no question, his promises of growth, the numbers weren't great in 2017. I think they'll improve in 2018. His promises on manufacturing jobs, nowhere close to where they need to be. And he has started to rely a little more on Indian nationalism. And some of his allies have relied on it in a pretty toxic yeah. way. The thing that I am more concerned about in India, for the last 30 years, there's been a presumption that long term, if you need to bet on India or China, you bet on India because the Indians have a democratic political model. They're more open. I wonder so they if that's a bug it. or a feature. Well, I mean, I would argue that increasingly the Indians see the efficiency of the Chinese system as yeah. attractive, and they're trying to use technology to become more top-down themselves. They see the Chinese model as more something to be emulated as opposed to a disadvantage that is to be avoided. Yeah. Another fascinating young leader, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he adept? Yeah. He's 32. Yeah. I like him. I, I didn't the first time I saw him. I thought he was uh, pretty arrogant. I think he's learned a lot. I think he's a patriot. In the West, we clearly want him to succeed. Mm -hmm. He is trying to do mostly all the right things at home. He's bringing women into the workplace. He's trying to open and liberalize culture and society. He is reforming political Islam in a way that is vastly overdue. He's diversifying the economy. But it is from a really low base. They are all about oil. They are very conservative as a society. The Wahhabis have really controlled social norms in the country. And I just don't know they have the ability to implement on all this stuff because underneath MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, and a small coterie of advisors, it gets thin pretty quickly. And I mean, the well, now that they have a movie theater, maybe. I mean, you know, what's interesting is the demonstrations in Iran in the past few months absolutely were stimulated in part by the fact that the backward Saudis are doing stuff that the Iranians aren't doing. Yeah. So wait a second. Okay, okay. They, they're going to be allowed to drive. The, the Iranians have been allowed to drive for a while. But so women can go to stadiums now? Mm -hmm. So women can participate? Like the Iranians are suddenly saying, what, what's wrong with our government? Yeah. How come you're not doing that for Though us? I have heard it argued that the real impetus behind letting women drive is an economic one because the economy is going so bad. Now you could get rid of all the chauffeurs and not have to pay them. The real impetus behind all of this is an economic one. <laughs> the it world. Is, yes, I know. It is but... that, no, no, in Saudi Arabia, yeah. it's, that they, it's that oil, I mean, this year, they are going to be passed by the United States. We will be producing more oil than them. It's, it, OPEC is going to die. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing that surprised me is that Obama, when he was promoting the Iran deal, which he's been pilloried by on Trump, he never used the economic argument, maybe because he thought it was tawdry. But the fact is that allowing the Iranians to produce another million plus barrels a day of, of oil breaks the, the market. 
a market that the Americans are already trying to destroy against countries that used to have a stranglehold on the United States. Think about the 70s and the blockade. And so this is a tax benefit for every American, and it's the end of OPEC. Like, that by itself was a good reason to support the Iranian deal. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of that. All right. Ian Bremmer is a president of the Eurasia Group. He assesses the top global risks every year. I don't want to step on it, but it was China for 2018. And his forthcoming book is called Us Versus Them. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. And now the spiel. The other day, Trump, President Trump, was in Ohio speaking to some factory workers who all got a bonus of a thousand bucks, a thousand dollars. That's good after taxes. Maybe it's a hundred dollars less, maybe two hundred dollars less. You know, these tax cuts, they're really quite something. It'll definitely be enough to allow these factory workers to buy Costco membership near Paul Ryan for years to come. But then Trump goes and mentions the only crime defined in the Constitution. An un-American. Un-American. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? Can we call that treason? Why not? I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country very much. Par for the course, par for the Trump course, the highly leveraged, festooned with false pictures of Trump as man of the year Trump course. The reaction, though, was what I thought was interesting. We expect Trump to make such statements. It's how people react. The derogore reaction, you ask serious people in a serious role who take their lives seriously, they say something like, I seriously cannot believe he would say that. Democrats said as much. The media reacted incredulously. That he implied his rivals committed a crime that is punishable by death, and that crime was not clapping for him. But, you know, that's such a reasonable and derogore take. It's not interesting. Like Trump, that guy is interesting. Like a syphilitic narwhal is interesting. Dan McLaughlin, writing in the National Review, said, clearly Trump wasn't serious and, quote, liberals going to DEFCON 1 as if he is, are yet again proving how little interest they have in distinguishing between tyranny and mere boorishness. Now, one could argue that one quality sometimes leads to the other. Also, boorishness shouldn't be used as a tyranny defense. Aha! He can't be a tyrant. He's far too boorish. You know, he might be both. Duterte and Berlusconi, both a fair dollop of both. McLaughlin continues, the real problem here is not that Trump is going around actually calling in deadly earnest for his political opponents to be prosecuted for treason, but that he's basically openly mocking the idea that words in politics mean anything at all. So it's not that he means treason, though that might be a problem, but the real problem is he doesn't mean treason. McLaughlin's making the case that Trump's demeaning the presidency. He's saying that Trump's just playing a reality show character. And of course, his supporters know it. They're playing along when they laugh and clap at the exact point you expect someone to laugh and clap. That's because they know it's their cue. Now, what I did is I watched the tape a bunch of times and over Trump's left shoulder, which would be to the right of him on our screen in the corner of the screen, depending on how your particular screen is cropped, there's a guy 
in a gray cap. He has, I think it's a half sleeve, though he's wearing a short sleeve t-shirt. So I don't know. Oh, by half sleeve, I mean all the tattoos covering his arm. I don't know how far up the tattoos go. He has a thick, bushy goatee. I mean, this guy says factory worker from Ohio, if he says anything at all. What I wanted to do was I wanted to get inside his head. And I can do that because I host a podcast. I'm going to bring you the inner monologue of gray-hatted, lushly goateed guy behind Trump. Now, first, let's play the clip. I'll narrate what his actions are. An un-American. Un-American. So now he's not saying anything. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? Now he breaks into a big smile. Can we call that treason? Why not? And now he's enthusiastically clapping and smiling gleefully. All right. Here now, though, as those were his actions projecting onto the world, here's what guy with lush goatee, beautiful goatee, and a bunch of tattoos was thinking. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? Huh. Okay, he's alleging treason. That is very tongue-in-cheek. What would be an equally tongue-in-cheek audience member action to do to further this bit of play acting? Okay, I'll smile. Hope I wasn't too late. Okay, now he's playing the the rabble-rouser mode. Let's get meta here. What's my motivation? Right, right, right. I'm the rabble. Gotta get roused. Gonna clap. Not because I think he means it, but because he's obviously kidding, and I'm just trying to help the joke. Six years of improv training before I hit the factory floor teaches me to yes and like the wind. There are a couple ways to be tongue-in-cheek. And that's how Sarah Huckabee Sanders described Trump's statement. Tongue-in-cheek. Now, one version of tongue-in-cheek is say something that you really don't believe as if you do believe it. Like, um, hey, is it smart for Eagles fans to trash their city? Sure. You know what? I say go nuts, guys. Some people who you've never met or don't care about you at all, who wear a uniform with your city mentioned on it, who are motivated by lots of money, they played a game, they won that game. You know what? It's a municipal imperative. Destroy the infrastructure. Go for it. Right? So I was being tongue-in-cheek, but do I really believe that? I don't. I I believe in protecting Philadelphia. But here's another version of tongue-in-cheek, which is saying something that you do believe. Are Eagles fans the lowest dregs of humanity? Well, we've got some pretty low dregs. They're kidnappers and bank robbers, and the guy behind the counter says, can I help the following customer instead of can I help the next customer? But yeah, okay, I'd say Eagles fans are the worst. Now, do I really mean that? I'm being tongue-in-cheek. But I'm also pretty much furthering the idea that Eagles fans are the worst. I should, if I were a normal human being, adhering to niceties, or norms, or just back to the normal human being thing. If someone really asked me, hey, are Eagles fans the worst? I would say, well, yes, we all are impassioned supporters of our teams. They tend to go too far, but it's a great moment. Just don't hurt yourself, guys. Of course, that wouldn't get on TV, and Tammy Duckworth wouldn't tweet against me. Anyway, here's an important point. It's not like Trump had to address the question of, are the Democrats treasonous? He wanted to. He plucked that question from the crowd, if it really was in the crowd. I mean, the mics didn't pick up what the crowd was shouting. And Trump says, someone said, pointing to someone in the crowd, someone said treasonous. Yes, normally you would just ignore such a thing because why would you touch that third rail? I mean, crowds shout ugly things all the time. We have this phrase, mob rule, not because it's wise governance. Wait, mob rule? Cut to the guy in the gray hat. Woohoo! Mobs rule. Yes, they do. Nailed it. 
Listen, Trump's comments are, of course, only the 439th most appalling thing he said in the last few months, yet they still are appalling. And don't let him turn those of us who are appalled into theater critics or semioticians in the name of contextualizing or excusing them. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is the gist producer. Someone said rudderless. Okay, he's rudderless. Why not? Mary Wilson is the gist senior producer. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of all Slate podcasts. Did they forget your name, Mary? I don't know. Mary Wilson, everyone. They didn't put her name up there, but that's okay. The gist. You know that whole let Norway be a superpower thing? That's an idea. I think that has legs. Oomperu, deperu, duperu. And thanks for listening.